have your Bibles with you this morning, you open them please to Galatians chapter 4. This morning we start a brand new sermon series entitled, A Rainbow Christmas. And we're going to be looking at the different colors of Christmas and how they might speak to us about the true meaning of Christmas that seems to get lost in all of our goings and comings. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, the words of the greatest Christian man who ever lived, the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church at Galatia, writing to the church at Miles Road, He's writing to those of that day. He's writing to us this morning. But when the fullness of the time was come, Galatians 4, verse 4, when the fullness, the exactness, the precision of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman. Pay attention to that phrase, made of a woman made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. You know, there's a lot of people smarter than you and I this morning. And some of those smart folks are called psychologists. And they make a habit of studying things that you and I probably wouldn't think about studying. And one psychologist many years ago did a study of people and Christmas trees. And in that study, he determined you can tell what a person's like by looking at their Christmas tree. You can profile a person by their tree. Now, let me tell you, this is what he found, okay? Now, how many of you got a tree up right now? Raise your hand. Okay, so we're going to profile you a little bit. If you use nothing but multicolored lights on your tree, you are an extrovert. Okay? You're outgoing. You're friendly. You're personable. You get along with anybody and everybody. If you use only white lights on your Christmas tree, you are a clean and tidy person. Everybody takes their shoes off at your door. If you use homemade ornaments on your Christmas tree, it says one of two things. You have lots of children or you're a cheapskate. If you string popcorn on your Christmas tree, it says that you have too much time on your hands. If you use only one color in decorating your Christmas tree, it says that you are dull and boring and a lack of imagination. If you put blinking lights on your Christmas tree, it says you have ADD. If your tree has a vague smell of evergreen, it means it's a healthy tree. You made a good selection. If your tree has a strong smell of evergreen to it, it means you put too much pine saw on it. 
bad cover-up. And if your tree stinks like a dead animal, chances are there's one in it somewhere. Good luck. Hasn't that been helpful? Aren't you glad you come this morning? Now you walked away with something. You'll go home and look at your tree and say, that's me. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about the color green. Christmas is colored green. Now, green is a Christmas color. Our trees are green. The wreaths on our door are green. Many of the decorations that we will put on our tree and throughout our home are green. And the money we spend to buy all those Christmas gifts is green. Some of you said plastic, I know. And green is a color that's not only associated with Christmas, but it's associated with the newness of life. The newness of life instead of the oldness of death. Now in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we learn that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world. He came into a world that was dying and dead. He came into a world that was black and white and mostly black. And he came into the world that first Christmas to change things, to radically change things, to radically and dramatically change things. Because when Jesus came into the world, he came to bring life, not existence, not death. He said, I've come to bring life and I've come to bring it eternally and I've come to bring it abundantly. Jesus came into the world that first Christmas. He changed the blackness to green. He changed death to life. He changed hell to heaven. That's what he did. He came to change things, to change the color of things, to change the condition of things for every single person, including you and I. I want you, if you have your Bibles with you, to turn back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In many ways, Genesis 3, 15 is a parallel verse to Galatians 4, 4. The birth of Jesus was not something that God just decided to do as an afterthought. I want you to know that the Lord does not do things spur of the moment. He doesn't fly by the seat of his britches. He doesn't do things unplanned. Before the foundations of the world, he set forth his plans, his purposes, and he carries them out with exactness, as we're going to see, and with precision. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in the very first book of the Bible, third chapter, 15th verse, we see three things. We see a pronouncement, we see a promise, and we see a prophecy. This is the Lord speaking to the serpent, better known as the devil. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. In other words, I'm going to create a state of warfare 
between you, Satan, and the human race, and between your seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now let me explain to you what that verse was saying, because it's a dramatic verse to be found so early in the Bible. First of all, it's a pronouncement that there will now be a state of war between the devil and his demons and the human race. The darkness of the underworld against the people whom God loves, the people whom God created, the people whom God has a purpose for. There was a pronouncement made. God declared war against Satan and his demons. And then there was a promise that was made in that verse. God would not allow the human race to stand against the devil and his demons alone. It would be a mismatch. So God, in his wisdom, said, I'm going to help the human race. I'm going to take God the Son, and I'm going to make him the Son of Man. I'm going to change the odds dramatically. I will become a human being. And I will pick up the fight for the human race against the devil and his demons. And I will send my son, my only beloved begotten son, and he will come into the world. Do you look now look at the verse, Genesis 3:15, by a man and a woman. Is that what it says? It just says a woman. I will send my son into the world through the seed of a woman. Now, if you're thinking, you're saying, wait a minute. A man can't have a baby by himself. A woman can't have a baby by herself. It takes a man and woman. You're right, under normal circumstances. But God isn't normal. He isn't ordinary. He's extraordinary. He isn't natural. He's supernatural. He violates any time he so chooses the laws he set in place. There will be war between man and the devil. But man needs help, and I'm going to send my son to help him, and my son will come into the world through the seed of a woman, a virgin birth. No man will be involved, just her and my Holy Spirit. And then a prophecy is made about the outcome of this war. And this Jesus who would come through a virgin birth and wage war for us on our behalf. What's going to be the outcome? It's fixed. Notice what it says. It shall bruise thy head, speaking of the seed of the woman. And you shall bruise his heel, speaking of the seed of the woman. It looks like Satan's going to get the upper hand. Because the political leaders and the religious leaders got together. And they said, we don't want Jesus. He's a threat to our power. He's a threat to our system. 
so the Romans and the Jewish people put their filthy hands together, shook on it, and under the supervision of the devil, they crucified Jesus. The seed of the woman, the seed of the one born of a virgin, the son of the living God was crucified on a cross. And Satan said, I have won. I have bruised his heel. <laughs> but three days later, it all changed. Jesus came out alive. And he crushed the head of the devil. Oh, he received a painful wound on the cross, but Satan got a fatal wound in the resurrection. If you have, don't know it, let me tell you. We have won. We've won! Put a smile on your face. We've won. The battle is over. Now, Paul tells us that in God's plan, the first Christmas would occur. God would become a man. The first Christmas would occur in the fullness of time, he says in Galatians 4.1. That phrase, fullness of time, means when things were exactly, precisely, specifically in place. You see, God is a God of timing. He's not a God of time. He's always been. He'll always be. Time is irrelevant to God. He doesn't have a calendar. He doesn't have a clock. He doesn't have a watch. And some of you are watching your watch saying, will he be out on time? Yes, you will. He saw me. I saw you. I saw you. God is not a God of time. He's a God of timing. Just like Aaron sang, when he's four days late, he's still on time. It was his plan to be four days late that he could show a miracle to those people. And God in his timing brought Jesus into the world. How was it the fullness of time? Well, politically, it was the right time for Jesus to be born that first Christmas. You see... Rome ruled the world when Jesus was born. The Romans built roads that connected every part of their empire together. Up until the Romans, there were no good roads. The Romans came and they built roads that tied cities together. And with those Roman roads came the Roman military. And they guarded those Roman roads to make sure that the Roman citizens and others could travel safely from one place to another without harassment from criminals or terrorists. And the Romans who built the roads and the Romans who guarded the Rome roads with their military, they established Pax Romana, world peace. The world was full of war. But when Jesus was born, the Romans had established peace. There was peace in that time period. There was order in that time period. And Jesus came into the world. God chose that exact time to bring his son into the world, that his son would not have to contend with war.
his son would not have to contend with great amounts of violence. In the perfectness of time, when the climate was exactly right politically, Jesus came into the world. Not only politically was things right, culturally things were right. You see, in Jesus' day, just like in our day, there were many people who lived in many different places who made up the western part of the Roman Empire. And it was difficult sometimes for one, pe for one group of people to talk to another group of people. But something was going on the time that Jesus was born. A new universal language was starting to begin. The Greek language. People from all over the world were learning to understand the Greek language, to speak the Greek language. And because there was now a universal language that was unfolding, people could communicate with each other as never before. I could share my philosophies with you. You can share them with me. And language is no longer a barrier because we can all speak Greek. Now, why was that important? Because when God's Son came into the world, the gospel needed to go out to the world. And one day, the gospel that Jesus Christ would bring would go out through the vast portions of the Roman Empire, and much of it would be taught in Greek. The language of all people. So politically, it was the right time. Culturally, it was the right time. Jesus was born religiously when it was the right time. Judaism was starting to flourish. It was starting to blossom among the religions of the world. Judaism was about one God. Most of the other religions of the world were about pluralistic gods, multiple gods. Judaism was introducing to the world the concept there is but one God. And he's a true and living God. He's the God of heaven. He's the God of the scriptures. And Judaism was beginning to share that message in a world of paganism and pluralistic worship. And people were starting to listen to it. Dead religion was getting replaced by relationship. Now this is important because as the, Jew, as the Jewish religion, Judaism, began to grow and flourish, it started building churches in the outposts. Every community, every town had a, had a, a worship center, a synagogue. Jesus comes into the world, there's peace. The Greek language now can be spoken to the world. The gospel can be shared. And where do you share the gospel from? But from the synagogues that were built. They become outposts for the furtherance of the gospel. And then, in the fullness of time, socially things were ready. Politically, culturally, religiously, but socially. In Jesus' day, the people lived a gray life. There was a lot of gloom. 
there's a lot of doom. The people of Jesus' day, they were afraid to live, but they were afraid to die. They were eat up by guilt that they didn't know how to get rid of. They were spiritually lonely and empty. They were filled with insecurities and with doubts about themselves, about others, about eternity. They had no meaning. They had no purpose in their life. But eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we'll die. What's the use? And it's into this world that Jesus came. He came to give life. You know, our world is so much like that world, isn't it? Thousands upon millions upon billions of people who are absolutely empty. And some of you might be in that group. Empty. You're just existing. You're just drawing a breath until you check out and go into an eternity that you have no clue where you're going. It was into this world Jesus came. A world that was prepared by God to receive his son. A son who would come to change the color of the world from black to green, from old to new, from dead to living, from hell to heaven. That's the meaning of Christmas. Transformation. That's what Christmas is all about. Transformation. A getting rid of the old, a bringing in of the new. A stamping out of the blackness and an introduction to the technicolor of green. No more decay and death, now life and life abundance. No longer a fear of the unknown, darkness, but a joy of the known and life for all men. The color green. When you go home and look at your Christmas tree or you look at Christmas trees wherever you may go, I want you to remember that Jesus Christ hung on a Christmas tree. The first Christmas tree was not when he was born, it was when he was died. The Bible said he hung on a tree. The cross was called a tree in that day. Two boards, two beams, one vertical, one horizontal, and there Jesus Christ suspended between heaven and earth, would die for the sins of the world. When you see a Christmas tree, remember the cross. For he died on that cross for you and me. And when you see the green of the Christmas tree, remember that his death was not in vain. His death was to change the color, to change the condition, and to change the destiny of every person in the human race. So many people want to know, I wish I could start over. Listen, you can start over. Your life, can you can be born again. You can become new. You can become fresh. You can have a new beginning. You can have a fresh start. You can have life. 
life now and life forever. And life, not only where the cup is filled, but it's overflowing. The green tree speaks of the newness of life that he gives as he hung on the tree and he died. And then you look at the ornaments of red. His shed blood covered the first Christmas. There was no need for ornaments. There were no need for garland. There were no need for icicles. His blood would be the decoration. And then you see gold and silver on a Christmas tree. May that remind you and I of the blessings that were given to us in his death. And then on top of the Christmas tree, you will see a topper sometimes. And sometimes that topper will be an angel. May that remind us that on that first Christmas, the angels announced he was here. And should we not be like the angels, announcing he is here to a world that knows him not? Christmas green. It's about new life, abundant life, eternal life. Let me tell you a Christmas story in closing. No, it's not going to be about Rudolph. I'm sorry. Frosty? Oh, no. I like Frosty. He's a good fella, but I'm not going to tell you about him. How about the Scrooge? Well, no, I ain't going to tell you about the Scrooge. How about the Grinch? I like the Grinch. I like to watch him, but I'm not going to tell you about him. I want to tell you a Christmas story that I hope you'll never forget. Hang with me for five minutes. This Christmas story really goes back to October of 1985. Some of you that have lived in South Carolina all your life might start picking up a little bit about this, but I'll tell you more later. But in October of 1985, there was a, a piece of a human being. A human being is being generous. A piece of human trash was in a cell on death row in a penitentiary. The man, if you want to call him a man that was there, this piece of human trash that's sitting on the floor of a cell on death row, this piece of trash knows he deserves to be there. It's interesting, when you go to a prison, nobody ever deserves to be there. They're all innocent, aren't they? Well, he knew what he had done. He knew he deserved to be there, and he knew he deserved to die because he was on death row. He was a pill popper. He was a drug addict. He was a drunkard. He was an alcoholic. He was a thief. He was a rapist. He was a murderer. He was all of that and more. And he was young. Not long. Out of high school. And as that piece of human trash, black as black can be, dead as dead can be, yet still breathing, sat on that floor of that cell on death row, 
Chaplain Bob came by. Chaplain Bob was in a rush. It was Friday afternoon. It had been a long week. It had been a long day. He needed to get home. But something told him he needed to go by this particular group of cells on the way out. So he did. And he passed by the cell of this human being that I've described to you. And he looked at him. He had seen many just like him before. And as he looked at him, it was appalling what he saw. His hair was long and shaggy and greasy and matty. Looked like a dog who had been out in the rain. Horrible looking. His beard was long and scraggly and filled with all kind of stuff that he apparently had been eaten but never wiped his mouth or never wiped it out. His skin looked like a corpse. His smell was nauseating. Vomit was all over his top, and feces was all over his body. Chin rested on his chest. His head was down. He stunk to high heaven. And cockroaches, oh, I'm sorry, we're sophisticated, palmetto bugs, were all over him. They were in his hair, they were in his beard, they were in his clothes, they were in his eyes, his ears, they just climbing all over him like they would in a home where trash has been left on the floor. Chaplain Bob looked at this human being and said, would you say the name Jesus? Well, he didn't say nothing. He said, would you say the name Jesus? He, seven or eight times he prodded him to say the name Jesus. And finally the young man, in a barely audible voice, gurgled out Jesus. About the eighth time. The hour was late, Bob had to go. So in a quick synopsis of the gospel, he told that human piece of trash that God loved him and Jesus died for him. And he left. He came back on Monday, Chaplain Bob, and something said to him, go back and see that man you talked to on Friday. And he did. But what he saw was shocking. The young man who had long, scraggly hair full of grease, matted, his hair had been cut. A neat haircut was on him. That face that had looked like a corpse now had life in it. Those eyes that looked like a zombie now had expression. That young man that could only gurgle out a few words now spoke with personality. 
He had clean clothes on. His cell that was looked like a pig's eye had been swept out and all the trash had been swept away, including the pornography that was there. His beard had been shaved off. He was clean shaven. What Bob saw was a miracle. As big a miracle as you would ever see. As big as Jesus with, with the maniac of Gadara when Jesus cast out 6,000 demons out of a man and the man was radically changed. He saw it. And he developed a relationship with this piece of human trash that by the grace of God had now become a treasure. The world throws away trash, but God changes trash to treasure. And God had done something in that life. And that young man was radically, dramatically transformed in 72 hours to become something that nobody could ever figure out or explain. Word spread throughout the state of South Carolina across the country of what had happened to him. Many people said it wasn't true. It was a fake. It was, it was phony. It was a fraud. But six years later, he was still living for Jesus. He didn't have religion. He had a relationship with the living God who changed his black world to green, that took a man that was dead and gave him life who took a man who had not a chance and gave him a new start. The Christ of Christmas was born to Rusty Woomer's life. He would stay on death row all of his years. He never griped about it. He said, I deserve it. I did what I did. I have to pay for it. God has forgiven me, but the state of South Carolina will not. And I understand that. In April of 1991, he would die in the electric chair. But he's in heaven. All because he responded to Jesus and brought the one who came to give life and He brought the green of Christmas that day into the blackness of heart. And God saved him. Isn't that a good Christmas story? Because that's what Christmas is all about, transformation. Have you experienced that? I didn't ask you if you experienced church. I didn't ask you if you experienced religion. I asked you, have you experienced Christ? And has he transformed your life just like he did Rusty Woman? If not, why not? What are you waiting for? Now is the fullness of time for you. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.